question the important issues of today and try to find a sort of spiritual connection? Welcome to Religious Faith and the Public Square with Father John Holloman as your host. Religion deals with the most fundamental issues humans face. There are arguments for and against the existence of God, where religion belongs in everyday life and a number of questions left unanswered. This is where it all gets discovered. Now, here is Father John Holloman. Hello. Nice to be back with you. I'm going to try to finish up with uh, Paul today and get get on to the bigger issues, the the context of what was going on, um, so that we can see that um, they were dealing pretty much, humanly speaking, with the same problems we have today. Now, from the earliest time, Christians worshipped on the first day of the week instead of the seventh. Um, after all, the resurrection was the day after the Sabbath. <clears throat> now, the resurrection faith made this radical break with Jewish tradition possible. For those who doubted the reality of the resurrection, Paul's reply was he saw the risen Lord. In reference to his experience on the road to Damascus, when he got knocked off his horse, and it was a crucial turning point in his conversion. It was not a concept for him, the resurrection, but a part of his own religious experience. Moreover, Jesus' resurrection is but the first fruits. The great event that lies in the future will complete what Christ's resurrection has guaranteed. <clears throat> At his coming, and the Greek word there is parousia, the rest of his own people will be united with him. Now, parousia is a Greek term in the secular meaning of presence or being there. Specifically, uh, it refers to the imperial presence, which could be the actual visit made by the emperor to a province, or his symbolic presence as personified by a governor, or plenty of potentiaries sent by the emperor to carry out his work. The most important content of parousia was not the act of coming or the route of arriving, but the potency of the kingly presence. It is in this light that Paul applies to the triumphant Christ at the end of the age. He will rule as God's agent over the whole of creation. Paul's contemporaries would have had just as much difficulty, and perhaps even more so, with the resurrection that we do. There was no tradition in the Hellenistic world for such an idea. The body was considered to be of no enduring significance, and return to the earth following death. Paul argues that the resurrection, the resurrected body, was similar to that of a living human. Now, by body, Paul means a self, a self, an integrated self. What distinguishes one individual from another? The body, he says, is not lost but exchanged. The new spiritual body whatever it may be, is not subject to the limitations of bodily existence, but is characterized by imperishability, power, and glory. According to Paul, the hope of the resurrection bears directly on life during the interim before the parousia in two ways. First, if hope is limited to this life only, it is easy to become discouraged and, um, with immediate results. 
But the Christian hope gives meaning and encouragement to our work. Secondly, it serves both as a reminder of the shortcomings in our present way of life and as a future goal of what we might become. This means that Paul could accept the most severe things with equanimity. He neither denied that pain was real, nor bore with something as inevitable part of personal fate-bound universe uh, as the Epicurean philosophers advocated. Um, He believed that trials were necessary for the age to come. In Romans chapter 8, verse 17, we refer with Christ, we suffer with Christ in order that we may be with him. Such sufferings, however, are unimportant compared with what lies ahead for him and the new community. The um, mystical union between Christ and his people is one now of suffering and service. But the new age, in the new age, it will be a triumphal one. <clears throat> what we look forward to is not simply to be with Christ, but to be united in triumph forever with all saints. I'm going to touch on what Paul meant by justification by faith, because there's, there's a lot of misconceptions about what Paul was um, meaning when he used that phrase. In the Jewish view, which Paul and the early Christians inherited, morality was not a matter of living up to ideals, but of obedience to living personal God. Um, specific precepts in Scripture were not thought of as concrete expressions of God's will, were thought of as an expression of God's will rather than abstract ethical principles. Paul opens his letter to the Romans, which is the most systematic of all of us, by developing the theme of man's sinfulness. Those who think of sin and redemption primarily in individualistic terms as a private matter between oneself and God will have difficulty appreciating the view of man assumed by the New Testament writers who draw on the Old Testament image of man. For them, man is a part of a human community. A person is bound by birth to his or her nation, tribe, and family, but above all to the human race, soul, which seeks independent of God. The story of Adam in Genesis is the story of everyone, not just something that happened way back when. Adam embodies the attitude of self-seeking autonomy, characteristic of everyone in every age. Is there a remedy for such a predicament? Paul shared with the Old Testament writers the belief that there is. God had come into being a people of God to obey and serve him. In turn, were to be a light to bring knowledge of God to the Gentiles who are imprisoned and in darkness. For Paul and the New Testament writers, this mission had not been fulfilled by Israel. So God was creating a new people of God, namely the church, through whom these unfulfilled objectives would be achieved. This new people of God is not defined by those who are biologically descended from Israel and Judah, or, or circumcision, 
but by anyone who responds in faith and obedience to the God of Israel. Thus, justification by faith is not the major theme of Romans. It is only part of a larger objective to show how God is establishing his people. Key phrase is the righteousness of God revealed through faith. Chapter 1 of Romans. How has it been revealed and why can it only be known through faith? Our alienation from God results in moral degradation. And we cannot escape the condemnation that comes with it by trying to be better. The Old Testament law only serves to remind us of our failure and increases our sense of guilt. Into this apparently hopeless situation, God himself has come in the person of Jesus. Through Christ, the alienation is overcome and our sense of guilt is removed. Only after we have been delivered from the power of evil can we turn our attention to the matter of sins and ethical demands. Particular sins are only symptoms of the real problem. Since all stand under condemnation because of their share in Adam's sin, the hope of redemption involves the creation of a new race, a new race of humans. The old is characterized by Adam's disobedience, the new by Jesus' obedience. Unaided by divine grace, we cannot be good, nor does trimming off imperfections solve the moral problem. The prerequisites of goodness are a complete reorientation to God and an inner transformation. Now, Paul was convinced that to talk ethics to one who is bound to a morally impotent race, meaning the human race, is misleading as well as a waste of time. It suggests that if, if we only try hard enough, God will have to accept it. And the Pharisees um, and Pelagius, who was a Christian writer of, of several hundred years later, after Paul, um, entertain this idea that uh, if for the Pharisees, if they could get everyone in, in Israel to obey all 600-odd laws laid down in the Old Testament one day, then this would precipitate the coming of the Messiah. In other words, in theory, not in practice, God can be manipulated to bring about the, the deliverance from the Roman Empire. Um, for Pelagius, is the idea that you can pick yourself up by your own moral bootstraps and, and earn your way into heaven, um, which I suppose makes him uh, a, a lot of Americans if they knew who he was. Um, now, Paul was... Paul maintains that the real obstacle is a sense of estrangement from God and the lack of inner motivation to do what is right. Now, however, God has begun to work on an entirely new basis, just 
institution by faith. This is not a radical break with the past, since it was available to people of faith as far back as Abraham. Throughout the Old Testament, it is clear that God wanted the devotion of his people, not empty ceremonies. What is new is that God has exercised himself through Jesus to free us from bondage. In Hebrew thought, righteousness is not a moral attribute. It is not primarily a quality, but an activity. A judge in ancient Israel justified someone who had been wronged, neither instilled uprightness nor creed innocence, but rectified the situation by restoring the wronged person to his rightful place. Thus, when Paul uses the term, the emphasis is on God's word, by which the oppressed are vindicated. The righteousness of God refers to the initiative God has taken to restore us to our proper relationship with him, not to some infused quality. Getting right with God is not something we can strive for, since it results from what God has already done in Jesus. We receive the benefits of this gift by faith, and the focus of God's justifying activity is Jesus' death on the cross. Our guilt is removed by the obedience of Jesus, even unto death. There is no place for human pride here, since one is accepted before God, not on the basis of what he does, but on the strength of what God has done for him. So also there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile, since the must come to God on the same basis, not circumcision, but faith. So justification by faith is something that Paul was really an argument for the, that we don't need circumcision. Um, the so-called Judaizing controversy. Um, circumcision was not required of Abraham until after he had trusted God and had been adopted by him. Thus the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham rested solely on faith. We've got a break coming up here now, so we'll go to the break. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com As a Catholic or non-Catholic, would you be interested in knowing more about the faith? We have a large selection of books in various categories from apologetics to spirituality. CDs and DVDs are also available, as well as handcrafted rosaries. In short, we are a resource for seekers. If we do not have what you are looking for, give us a call and we will try to find it for you. Visit DefendingTheCatholicFaith.com to find out more or call us at 251-317-3977. That's DefendingTheCatholicFaith.com. Are you satisfied with your life? Do you know that more should be possible? Listen for the Access Consciousness Radio Show with the creators of Access, Gary Douglas and Dr. Dane here. Our program offers pragmatic tools to change things in your life that you haven't been able to change until now. What if all of life could come to you with ease, joy, and glory? Tune in to Access Consciousness Thursdays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Empowerment. 
are you, really? Are you the person you want to be, or are you the person that others want you to be? Think about that. We don't always recognize our gifts and potential because we stick to old methods of being and do what others in our lives tell us. It's time to break through. Listen for Rediscovering the Magic of Being with Marja. Each program connects you back to whom you were meant to be every Tuesday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time and 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Tune in. Build your better business. Achieve that goal. Make good on that resolution. The Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. You are tuned into Religious Faith and the Public Square with Father John Holloman. To reach the program today, please call 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. You may also send an email to defendingcatholicfaith at gmail.com. Now, back to Religious Faith and the Public Square. Hello again. Uh, we were talking about Paul and his idea of justification by faith. Uh, and he was making the point that circumcision was not required of Abraham until after he had trusted God and had been accepted by God. Thus the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham rested solely on faith. Now this does not mean that we can do as we please. Now we are compelled to do God's will from an overwhelming feeling of gratitude. I can't stress that strongly enough. There must be a sense of gratitude for what God has done for us, not from a sense of obligation. We're not just um, grinning, grin, grin and bear it mentality uh, mm-hmm. to follow some laws laid day down. <clears throat> The new element is the love of God, as the believer has experienced it in Christ, and as Paul had experienced it in Christ on the road to Damascus. Until we respond to faith to offer in faith, the work of redemption will have no effect on us. The fact that one is in Christ does not free him from responsibility for his actions. His life should correspond to his spiritual status in the new creation. And so long as we are in this life, temptation will always be present, and the possibility of yielding to the pull of the old life will be very real. <clears throat> Nothing in our new status prevents us from allowing sin to control us. Our job is to see to it that the controlling influence in our lives is obedience to God, not yielding to sinful impulses. Well, there is no, there is no halfway house between a life of obedience and a life of sin. This does not mean that we must be either sinlessly perfect or hopelessly sinful. We're always somewhere in between. Um, We're all a bundle of contradictions. As St. Paul put it, what I want to do, I don't do, and what I do, do, I don't want want to do. Um, The compelling force for our striving is not the prize of perfection, but eagerness to express gratitude and devotion for our redemption. 
For Paul, the unity of the church is not merely a feeling of togetherness, but a belief in a mysterious oneness in Christ. We need to recognize the diversity that must exist within the unity of the body of Christ. Behind all the various functions, there is just one spirit, the Holy Spirit. Using a human body as a metaphor for the church, Paul asserts that the community also depends on certain central organs. The foremost organ for Paul is the head, which is considered the seat of life. Um, the head is not only the source of life, it also determines the form of the body's spiritual growth and integrates the life of the whole body. Thus, the community cannot consider itself autonomous. It demands for its existence and its continuous on the, on the head, Jesus. By spirit, Paul did not mean a material substance, as the Stoic philosophers was maintained, nor even a generalized force. It's in Star Wars. It is the pervasive power of God through whose purposes are fulfilled and closely related to the person of Jesus. By flesh, he does not mean material body, but the quality of being human, with such inevitable limitations as instability, fear, and weakness. The flesh is an outlook on life that rests on insecure foundations. It judges by appearances it fails to understand the nature of reality. It mistakes the worldly standards of wealth, force, or social approval for the real values in life. It is life in the flesh that makes us morally helpless to do God's will, even with the aid of Torah, of the teaching. Christians in the spirit fulfill the requirements of the law, not by moral striving, but by the of the Spirit at work within their lives. It brings an intimacy with God that striving to obey the law had never been able to bring. This doesn't mean that it is with difficulty or conflict, only that we can live free from guilt and fear, conscious that nothing can separate us from the love of God. And um, it's I've often said to people, um, it's a revelation that we cannot uh, earn our righteousness, we cannot earn our salvation by living up to certain standards. It's only in love, loving God and having him love us that um, we can be justified. Um, for Paul, goodness is not reasonable or according to nature, as the Stoics maintain, since human nature leads us away from God. An ethical life is simply a response to the mercies of God that we have experienced in Christ. The ideal is not virtue, but sanctification. The call to holiness, which comes with baptism. But what are the Jews? 
thereof resulted in the Gentiles being saved. And Paul was convinced that they could not remain recalcitrant indefinitely. God still has a purpose for them. Promises made to Abraham were not forgotten by God just because his descendants proved unworthy. Since Paul believed strongly in the coming kingdom of God, he made no attempt to legislate for a Christian society or give rules for a new social order. Uh, for example, that's why he has nothing to say about slavery. It's simply an institution that exists. But like most of the early Christians, he was anticipating the imminent return of Christ to initiate the coming of the kingdom on earth. There was no time to worry about institutions like slavery. Um, He did not think that it was his job to bring in to bring in the kingdom. Paul did not see it as his job, but to preach the good news and prepare people for what God was about to do. Now, two aspects of Paul's thought on eternal life. One he writes as he expected to be transported immediately into Christ's presence when he the second thing. He speaks of those who have died being asleep, awaiting the trumpet call on Resurrection Day. All this is that Paul was not interested in a systematic theology. He was living in a time of crisis, during which his job was to prepare us for the coming of the new age. Now we can turn to the broader issues. What about the church and the world? Paul's vision of Christianity and his mission outside the limits of Judaism led to difficulties both within the Jewish community, which was subjected to profound trials toward the end of the first century AD, and with authorities in the Roman world, into which the church was quickly And we look at these two conflicts. The fall of Jerusalem to the Roman army in 70 AD gave final direction for future relations between Jews and Christians. Without the consolidation of Judaism under the rabbis towards the end of the century, the Council of Jamnia around 90 AD, a necessary act of self-defense to preserve their identity without a temple in Jerusalem, it rapidly became a choice between Jew or Christian. For example, the Septuagint, which was the uh, translation of the Hebrew Bible into Greek, which was done in Alexandria in Egypt. Um, the Septuagint was rejected by Jewish scholars. Um, why? Because Christians were using it to argue against um, the need for things like circumcision. Um, so the evidence of mounting hostility between the two groups, Christian and Jewish, 
is found in both Jewish and Christian sources. References to Christians as minim, M-I-N-I-M, which is the Hebrew word for heretics, reflects a growing fears among Jews for their religious identity. Hence the story that Jesus was an illegitimate son of Mary, a Roman soldier, comes from Jewish sources of the period. On the Christian side, John's Gospel, especially the Passion story, depicts the Jews as blind and obstinate in their failure to accept Jesus as the Christ. Jerusalem Christians, at least until A.D. 62, were zealous to demonstrate their loyalty to Judaism by participating in temple worship and strictly observing the law. Um, James, Jesus' brother, took the initiative in demanding that Gentile Christians respect certain aspects of Jewish legal regulations. You can find the reference to that in Acts chapter 15. Even the riots stirred up by Paul in 55 didn't seem to provoke unfavorable reactions against Jerusalem Christians. They remained aloof from the and made no effort to come to Paul's aid. Now, two incidents ended this peace and sharpened the conflict. First, James was put to death by order of the high priest in the year 62 AD. Two separate and differing accounts agree on one point. James was executed by a Jewish official in spite of and in part because of his popularity with the people of Jerusalem. Secondly, the Jewish revolt against the Roman occupation, which lasted from AD 66 to 70. Um, Initially, some areas were liberated from Roman control. The independence of the Jewish nation was declared, and Jewish coinage was issued. But the poorly armed bands of revolutionaries were no match for the 60,000 seasoned troops that were sent to quell the revolt. By 69, all of Palestine except Jerusalem and some outlying fortresses near the Dead Sea were under control. Commander of the Roman troops, Vespasian, became emperor in that year. He left it to his son, Titus, to finish the job in Palestine. Unfortunately, the Jews themselves were divided. From the start, there were two parties. The peace party believed God would free the nation from oppression in his own way and his own good time. The resistance party believed that they had to take the initiative in driving the Romans out. Once fighting actually started, the rebels predominated. But even they began to fight among themselves under rival leaders. During the siege of Jerusalem, the Christians seemed to have been sympathetic to the peace party, placing their hopes God and not a military victory. When the city fell after a five-month siege in 70, the Romans demolished it, including the wall and temple. And it's interesting how they did that. Um, I'll come back to that as soon as the break is over. your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com 
As a Catholic or non-Catholic, would you be interested in knowing more about the faith? We have a large selection of books in various categories from apologetics to spirituality. CDs and DVDs are also available, as well as handcrafted rosaries. In short, we are a resource for seekers. If we do not have what you are looking for, give us a call and we will try to find it for you. Visit DefendingTheCatholicFaith.com to find out more or call us at 251-317-3977. That's DefendingTheCatholicFaith.com. The White House Doctor makes house calls. Listen every week for House Calls with Dr. Connie Mariano. Dr. Connie has served as the White House physician under three U.S. presidents. Now she joins the Voice America Empowerment Channel to help you enrich yourself physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Our guests will include professionals from a variety of fields who will bring you tips that you can apply to your own life. Listen for House Calls with Dr. Connie every Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's time to transform your life. Start by tuning in to The Glenise Show with Glenise Hughes. Glenise combines business, relationships, wealth, life, and a whole lot of magic to create abundance and prosperity in every part of your life. It's all done through straight and often frank discussions in the best way that Glenise knows how. Listen every Thursday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time and 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Master your life with The Glenise Show. Success starts here. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. It's your world. You are tuned into Religious Faith and the Public Square with Father John Holloman. To reach the program today, please call 1 888 346 9141. That's 1 888 346 9141. You may also send an email to defendingcatholicfaith at gmail.com. Now, back to Religious Faith and the Public Square. Hello again. Just before the break, we were just talking about the uh, siege of Jerusalem by the Roman army, and uh, which uh, succeeded in 70 AD. Um, they were determined to teach the population a lesson, and so they destroyed all the walls of the city and the, the temple that had been built by Herod the Great. How did they do that? Well, you've heard of the Mount of Olives, but if you go there today, you don't see any olive trees except one small patch that was replanted just so that the mount could retain its name. But in our Lord's day, the Mount of Olives was covered with olive trees. It was a great source of olive oil uh, for the population. They cut down all the olive trees on the Mount of Olives, piled them against the walls of the city and the walls of the temple, and set fire to them. And apparently the heat in the limestone uh, walls and uh, city as well as the temple. Um, when it got hot enough, it just simply exploded. And that's how they demolished the walls and the temple. Um, <clears throat> the Christian community seems to have fled the city just before the siege began to the Gentile city of Pella, east of the Jordan in Decapolis. 
This destruction of Jerusalem was interpreted by Christians generally as a divine judgment on Judaism for its rejection of Jesus. For them, this was the final proof that the old dispensation had come to an end, that a new Israel had taken the place of the old one. For the Jews, the catastrophe was a signal to draw even closer together to save their heritage and identity. <clears throat> Pharisees emerged as the one and only normative religious trend in Palestine. This led to a sharper separation from the Christians. The new conflict between Roman authorities soon became more important than the old one with the Jews. This was not sought by the Christians, nor was it precipitated by deliberate action of the state. The state was not concerned with the content of their teaching, but with its effects. Movements which were likely to disturb the established order, the Pax Romana, based on a wide tolerance in religious matters, created a situation which for the sake of law and order, Rome was unwilling to tolerate. Persecution was a matter of political expediency, not religious intolerance. The first clear evidence of a serious incident comes from the reign of Nero from 54 to 68 AD. It concerns only the Christians of Rome. In the summer of 64, a fire ravaged the city for six days. Nero blamed it on those who were hated on their viciousness by the people and were called Christians. Quote from his book. He first had some of them arrested and confessions extracted. And here is a quote from the Roman historian Tacitus in his book entitled Annals. He writes, Then on their information, large numbers of others were condemned, not so much for incendiarism, setting the fire, as for their antisocial tendencies. Their, days, their deaths were made farcical, dressed in wild animal skins. They were torn to pieces by dogs, or crucified, or made into human torches to be ignited after dark as a substitute for daylight. End of quote. Important points are that Christians were recognized as being distinct from Jews. And there was a general hostility toward Christians among the population. Why? The civil life of the empire so bound up with the state called that the Christians with their rigorous monotheism and clannish separatism had cut themselves off from much of the daily routine of the average Roman citizen. <clears throat> For example, uh, the church had put a ban on attending at the famous Colosseum, um, the gladiatorial contests. Why? Um, <clears throat> because in the Roman Empire, life was brutal, short, and cheap. And these gladiatorial games, whether it would be gladiator versus gladiator or gladiator versus uh, somehow have been thrown in there to be executed. Um, <clears throat> placed absolutely no value on human life. Uh, for the Romans, the only thing that mattered was how you met your 
if you met it bravely or if you met it clashing. Um, so the church put a ban on, once you were baptized, you could not attend those gladiatorial games uh, because of its um, disregard for the value of human life. So you can say the church has been pro-life from the very beginning. Um, Another problem was the frequent conversion of only one member of which created tensions, especially chastity. The shameful methods of execution show that they came mainly from the lower social classes. Um, if you were a Roman citizen, for example, and Paul qualified on that, uh, your execution was by beheading. But if not, it was crucifixion or turning you into a human torch or throwing you in with the wild animals to be demolished by them. Um, so the fact that uh, these methods of execution reserved only for the lower classes showed that many of the Christians were of that group. The situation crystallized under the Emperor Domitian from 81 to 90 He first to claim for himself divine honors, previously had been granted to deceased sovereigns only. This meant that whoever refused to perform religious ceremonies honoring the emperor, along with the state gods, was liable to prosecution on both civil and religious grounds. The book of Revelation, with its vision of threatening persecutions, was probably written about this time. Now, there are two pieces of correspondence between the emperor Trajan, who reigned from 98 to 117 AD, and Pliny the Younger, his imperial land in the province of Pontus, Bithynia, which we call Asia Minor today, about 110 AD, on the situation in the provinces. Trajan had forbidden secret meetings of unapproved societies due to a threat invasion from Parthia in the east. If they might become cells of political disruption, sort of uh, the inexperienced Pliny wrote to Trajan for info about how to punish the Christians. First, he gives the procedure he had been following heretofore asking an accused if he were a Christian three times with a threat of punishment each time. If they persisted in saying yes, he would excuse them. If someone denied it, he demanded that they invoke the state gods and worship the emperor's status with incense and wine and then curse Christ. Some had said they were Christians in the past, but no longer. He claimed that even when they were Christians, they did nothing more than meet together, sing hymns to Christ as to a God, and bind themselves by an oath not to commit theft or robbery or adultery, not to break their word, and not to pay a debt. 
Beyond that, they anticipated in eating a harmless meal of harmless food. Adrian replied that Pliny had taken the right course, and that no general rule or fixed form of action could be laid down. Christians were not sought out, but if they were accused, they would have to be punished. If anyone denied that he was a Christian and agreed to worship the gods, he would be pardoned even if he had been under suspicion. No one was to be charged anonymously. Um, if somebody made a charge, you had a right to face your accuser. Um, which shows how uh, our, our, our system of law today, uh, in many ways, is dependent upon uh, a lot of the principles developed by the Romans. According to Trajan's decision, which makes no reference to precedent, it is clear that Christianity was to be regarded as an illegal religion. The name as such punished. For the average Roman, the Christian viewpoint seemed to be a depraved and extravagant superstition. An enlightened polytheist, he could not see how the recognition of the state gods in any way threatened the individual religious loyalty. Even this clarification, there was no general persecution was envisaged. Under Trajan and uh, his immediate successors, here only of individual martyrs, not general action taken against Christians everywhere. Success had bred a new problem. The church could not avoid taking a stand in relation to the politics and culture of the rest of the world and had to define its concepts and organization in response to such challenges. Um, not unlike the situation we find ourselves in today. How do we relate to uh, the civil demands of an increasingly secularized society um, which um, no longer takes seriously uh, the Christian view of things. Now, this meant that the church, because the, end, the same coming didn't happen right away, eventually evolved into an institution. The external threats coincide with internal problems equally serious, if not more so. One was a conflict over false teaching. Another was adapting a hitherto free pressure of institutionalization. These problems were larger in the later books of the New Testament than those with the Jews or the Roman government. The lines in the Christian state conflict were clearly drawn. The death of Christ was not an abstraction for people possibility is persecution only served to deepen and strengthen the faith as um, one Christian writer um, the church on the blood of its fathers it made Christians a more closely unit group and taught them to suffering and hardship a factor in the final victory of the movement. 
The lines were not so clear in the conflict over false teaching. The church did not enter the post-apostolic age through the well organization that had a defined doctrinal tradition and a prepared ethical code. The kinds of influences that promised assistance in working out a state of faith, norms of conduct, and form organization were needed. A false teaching problem proved to be a tremendous catalyst here. Heresy is not so much wholly false as it is a half-truth. It takes partial truth and inflates it with the claim of being the whole. It is this simplistic grain of truth which makes it a thing to many. The term comes from the Greek meaning a school or party received the negative connotation of sect quite early. Gnosticism, which comes from the Greek word gnosis, meaning knowledge, usually usually a secret kind of knowledge, initially seemed to be a friend in formulating Christian doctrine, but soon was recognized as the enemy number one because they had this uh, metaphysical dualism between matter and spirit. The two were considered incompatible, which made the incarnation uh, impossible. There's more of a Gnosticism represents more of a religious mood than a clearly defined doctrine. And it took clearly organized form under the impact of the movement. This set to undermine the Christian message necessitated the development of an organized ministry and the notion of apostolic succession. Much of this change was due to ongoing time. The first Christians did not reckon with this possibility. They thought the age would have been in their lifetime. The dominant themes in the post-apostolic period are unity. Variety of attention had never threatened their unity in Christ so long as the Spirit was. But with time, the gift of the Spirit no longer seemed as intense as it used to be, which um, should sound familiar. And too many spirits were claiming to speak of the name of Christ. Unity now had to be defined in terms around its possibilities and its limits. Secondly, there was holiness. By calling themselves saints, Christians expressed their conviction they had been called by God to fulfill his mission in the world. Again, being saint didn't mean being too good to be true, it meant being baptized and being a member of the body of Christ. So that um, in First First Corinthians, I think it is, um, Paul could chew out the Corinthians um, for uh, arriving early for when there was to be a Eucharistic meal, drinking up all the wine, being drunk by the time. Everybody else arrived uh, to do Eucharist. Um, and yet in the very next breath, he calls them saints. Not because they were behaving, but because they were a member of Christ's body by virtue of baptism. So we're, we're saints as well as sinners. Um, 
Again, with time, sin proved to be a constant reality, both within and without the church. And to redefine the meaning of holy, and to distinguish between those who were holy and unholy by developing an ethical code. Third, there was apostolicity. With the passing of the original apostles, where could the true apostolic tradition be found? With Gnostic teachers claiming to have secret teachings of the apostles, how could this claim was false? Standards had to be developed to distinguish true false teaching. So a regular organizing was one way to do this. This problem was the background for the pseudonymous, which is Greek for written under false name, writings of the New Testament. Pseudonymous authors were trying to entertain their readers using the name and authority of an apostle but to preserve the true apostolic tradition in a time of confusion. They were convinced that they were wrote in the way that the apostle himself would have written had he been in their place. But error, um, a clearer word on issues of right teaching then could be found in existing apostles. Church did not encourage such writings, but endorsed them by accepting them as the New Testament canon. Note that's spelled with one N, not two. Canon is a Greek word meaning measure. Do you measure up to being apostolic? It's not a concern with actual authorship, but consistency of teaching with that of the apostolic tradition. Well, it looks like we're coming up to the end of our hour for this today. We will pick up there next week, and I hope we're beginning to see how um, they were they were wrestling with the same problems we have today, both on a personal level, on on a group level. Hope you have a lively weekend. See you next week. tuning into Religious Faith and the Public Square. Please join Father John Holloman again next Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We hope you have a very good week.